This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for readers, writers and nosy people. I'm your host, Daisy Buchanan, and in this week's episode, I'm talking to one of my favourite writers and one of my favourite people, Kathy Rensenbrink. Lots of people will know Kathy's work from her best-selling memoir, The Last Act of Love. Kathy is one of the wisest people I've ever met. We first became friends a few years ago. I think that there's nothing she doesn't know about. She's an emotional genius. She's also one of my favourite people to talk about books to. We went to visit her in Falmouth in Cornwall. It's my first time in Falmouth. Together we talked about book abuse and very battered, tatty covers. Lending, reading in the bath, what you read in bed before you go to sleep and a prison. So I wanted to ask, before we came, Mm -hmm. did you do much kind of curation or tidying? Did you... When you looked at your books and how they were, did you think this this reflects well on me? Did you think, oh, I'd quite like them not to know? Do I consider my bookshelf to be a to to say things about me? I think that's a very interesting subject. I mean, I might have done if they were in better nick. Whereas mainly, what I did was take a few more things out, a few more boxes. Because although we moved house a year ago, I'm still in some disarray with the books. What I do like to spend quite a lot of time doing is rearranging my books. You know, putting them in alphabetical order. Theming them, I'll try different things. I'll try memoir section, and then it'll distress me that if you have a memoir section, of course, do you put Hilary Mantel and Julian Barnes's memoirs in the memoir section? Mm. But then they're not with their other books in the fiction section. Yeah. But of course, in a bookshop, you have the option of double stocking, so you'd have it in ah. both. But even for me, I think it's a bit excessive to get two copies of all the books I'm obsessed with. There are quite a lot. <laughs> Yeah, and I do have lots of multiple copies. I mean, when I really like something, I find it incredibly difficult not to stockpile all the different editions. I don't really want to let any of them uh, go. A bit like, you know, if you're a One Direction fan and they do five versions of the CD with all their faces. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much like that. And it's also something I have always... I just really love book design. I'm not actually particularly... I'm not really attached to books as objects. I don't... And I couldn't... Much as I love books, I wouldn't... I, I wouldn't really spend money on them. You see, I always want to be able to read something in the bath, pretty mm. much. So I don't want to... Oh, so how do you, what are your worst kind of sort of abuses of books? Because I know that some people are very, very 
careful about them and other people are just like no i will read it well, and then yeah, i'm on the i mean i'm te- i'm a terrible terrible vandal i read books in the bath i turn over the pages i write in them i underline them i litter them with post-it notes i use them to write memos in which is not a very successful thing to do because then i of course i lose i can't remember where which book i wrote in the important list of the things that i now need to remember and can't so i'm not a great respecter of the book as physical object Having said all that, I do love, I love book design. So I really find it exciting when you see, you know, sometimes an advanced copy will have a plain, plain jacket and then you, and then you can kind of see the evolution of the design that goes along with the book, which in some ways is, can be really um, sort of linked to the success of that book. Uh, do you have any favourite books that covers and designs? Oh yeah, can... let's go into the other oh, room. If we go and look at these, if we go and look at these new books? Yes, pages. that's uh, so this is the bookcase that um, your uncle has just built. Yeah, my uncle Paul has just built this for me. I think it's really beautiful. And you can smell the uh, smell new wood. Um, I just love the way. So it's got these poles down the middle, which are kind of working as bookends, which are quite good mm. for sorting things out. So it might look like there is no rhyme and reason in any of this, but it's because I'm writing a book about books, and these are all to some extent involved. So, shall we talk about your book about books? Can you talk about it? Do you want to? Or is it... Yeah, I mean, I don't mind. I'm writing it at the moment. It'll be out next October and still haven't quite decided what it's called. I quite like talking to strangers about books. Well... Do you think that's a nice title? I think it's a lovely title. I want to say, you know, that's what we're doing now, but we're hardly strangers, so... Well, no, but my favourite... The, the theme of my life is the truest thing probably I could say about myself is I like talking to strangers about books no matter how that is in bookshops in libraries strangers on trains as a writer at festivals I just like talking to people about books and of course when you talk to a stranger about books they don't stay a stranger very long because that's the other thing I think is amazing about books the power to connect people and and sort of often you speed into intimacy with someone when you write really do and it's a sort of a guide you can be very intimate but have a little bit of a remove because mm. you're um it's quite I've always thought it's quite a good like shorthand as well like so you might not want to I don't know you might not want to tell somebody loads of stuff about yourself but if you both like the same novel then it's like a nudge nudge wink wink of mm. um people that understand things they're looking at your shelves now I can see um Brother of the More Famous Jack um by Barbara Trapido and Fear of Flying by Erica Jonk yeah I really love both of those i do have three copies of the pursuit of love by nancy mitford because i just love this edition it's so you are so this is the design that yeah this is the design so i love that they did this whole this whole range they they repackaged all the backlist and i just thought they were so beautiful so the cover art here is by lourdes sanchez i just thought it was so beautiful so i i bought three copies but the pursuit of love i just think is a really can you read out the um the quote on the back because it's and it's sort of um, brings me into something I was going to ask you about going back to you, Erica Jong. Okay. I love those lines. Here, this one. Yes. Obsessed with sex, said Jassy. There's nobody so it's obsessed as you, Linda. Why? If I so much as look at a picture, you say I'm a Pygmalionist. In the end, we got far more information out of a book called Ducks and Duck Breeding. Ducks can only copulate, said Linda, after studying this for a while, in running water. Good luck to them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, fear of flying is... That's a sexy book, although lots of other stuff um, going on there. Certain very, 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 very popular and successful books have given sort of eroticism and literature a bit of a bad name. And I don't know whether Erica Jong, do you think she's still sort of beloved as ever? Is she a bit 70s? 
I oh, love her. Yeah, I mean, it is a bit 70s, isn't it? I just... Has that got the amazing 70s cover? Can I have a... Ah, it's got the female answer to Portnoy's complaint. That's very seventies, isn't it? Very yellow, fabulous, irreverent picture of her on the back. I mean, I think a lot of the sex doesn't really work in it, does it? It's more like in pursuit in pursuit of sex, Mm. you could have called it. Um, So a lot of the sex doesn't work, and it's all about what it means. But it's also actually one of the reasons I like, I do like the sex stuff, but I also like the therapy stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So because actually, if I remember rightly, the first line is utterly brilliant. Let's do the first line. There are 117 psychoanalysts on the Pan Am flight to Vienna and I'd been treated by at least six of them <laughs> and married a seventh. <laughs> I mean, I just, that's, a, that's how it's open a book, isn't great. it? Great. Can you remember the first book that you read where a bit of you sort of knew you maybe shouldn't be reading it? Yeah, I mean, because I, I was an extremely, uh, re, you know, a bit of a child prodigy and a big reader as a child and had had basically read everything that was on offer. So... Um, my mum was always very keen for me to read, but she had to she had to write a letter to both the library in Snaith, which was the, the nearest library was in the village next to ours, and she had to write a letter to the library, and she also had to write a letter to the school librarian, um, asking them to just let me get out what I wanted, because they were always trying to stop me getting stuff out because it wasn't appropriate. But but I mean I had by I had then like read everything else, so I did go through a sort of a bodice ripper stage Ooh. so literally the front of the covers were all sort of you know I had a sort of boobs like those um like Christmas puddings in a tub <laughs> I look like you're shoplifting them up a jumper but books are still fairly safe aren't they and I mean I remember reading Lady Chatterley's Lover and not quite seeing what all the fuss was mm. about and, um, were you disappointed I think I was a bit <laughs> I think I expected more in the well, mind you I think that's the thing with D.H. Lawrence isn't it I remember doing I can't remember now whether it was The Rainbow or Women in Love but I remember reading that when I was about 16 I think it I think I was reading it in the first year of my A-levels and reading pages and pages of stuff you know light was exploding flowers were bursting out into bloom and I got to the end of it and wanted to say like so did they shag or not <laughs> <you know? laughs> so uh, well I remember a bit in um having an argument with people in an A-level group um, who were doing Emma, and I felt quite swizzed because what was, I think we were doing Doris Lessing, and I thought, mm. but, but I've read Emma, it's really easy, I can do it. But there's a bit where I think it might be possibly, wouldn't be Mr Knightley, would it? Is it um, Frank Churchill? Someone is a bit sort of not safe in taxis, and there's like, um. he made love to her, or he tried to make love to her. And people said, there's sex in Emma. <laughs> I don't think there is. And it was just the phrase of the day yeah. implying and everybody being like, oh, it's, um, I had no idea, Jane Austen. Yeah, I think, um, I used to think Mansfield Park was quite boring. And then again, somebody said to me, it's all about sex. And I read it again. And I thought, oh, actually, yeah, I can get that. So yes, yeah, Pride and Prejudice there. Yeah, what happened a... to Pride and Prejudice? It's got half its cover missing. I know, why you see it go in the bath? I've read it in the bath, though. Look at it, look at it. Poor little creature. Yeah. Yeah, so I think I've probably read Pride and Prejudice, what? I mean, like, if I've read that 100 times, maybe. I might have read it 200 times. There are books which I just return to again and again and again, and I can't... Um... The nice thing, in a way, about losing my memory, now that I'm in my 40s, my memory's much worse, is that I re- when I reread books now, I get nice little surprises. <laughs> Whereas I used <laughs> to just back be... back to Agatha Christie. Yeah. Well, it does, yeah, and then kind of like, oh, I can't, I can't remember that that happened. But, I mean, I do know... All the good, the good Agatha Christie's, I know them almost off by heart, I think. So you 
worked in publishing for a long time and is it right were you a bookseller first yeah so bookselling really I worked for Wadstones for 10 years and in that time as a bookseller how do you think that kind of impacted upon your relationship with books I think it was always I mean I I, it's not much of an exaggeration it's really not to say that books have saved my life again and again and again and it's also not much of an exaggeration to say working in a bookshop saved my life because I really had I mean like when I got a job in a bookshop I really had sort of quite monumentally screwed everything up and then to work in the bookshop and to find there was something I could do it was amazing I felt so useless and low and crap and pathetic at everything and to find that, that there was something I could really do it was amazing and that there was some I remember thinking, like, oh, the only thing I could do was read faster than anyone else I've ever met. But actually, that's quite good that for some, a... for you know, for some jobs. And then, and then also, I realised that this sense of not being connected with the world, I was just kind of not hanging out with the right people. Because actually, when I'm with readers, writers to a certain extent, but when I'm with readers, I feel completely connected. I mean, I'm with my tribe when I'm with readers. When I'm with book people, do you feel like a reader even before you're a writer? I do actually, and I still do. I'm writing about that a bit in the books book. I still think it's my central identity, and probably at the end of my life, it's still like one of the main things I would say. I would say about myself. I don't think I'll ever not be a reader. Whereas I can, I, I mean, I could not be a writer. It might be that the writing is quite a short period of life. I wouldn't be surprised by that. But I, I will always read. I suppose as well. Maybe, you know, one can be a writer and not write for, you know, a week or a month or a year or ten years. But reading, you probably don't stop doing that for long. There's always something that you reach for that's on the go. That's true, yes, it's interesting, isn't it? I've assumed writing means... I mean, I'll always be a writer in that I will always be writing something down. Whether I'll always be a writer in that I'll always be successfully taming that into something linear that people might want to read and that might get published is a different thing and then of course so in the same way I'll always be reading books Uh, and I would think as well probably I'd always be professionally involved in books I can't think every so often I've you know I think about what other jobs I might do but I just don't I don't know why I would get a job that didn't involve reading and books really I think you can go two ways can't you where if you're around books a lot and you love them and you read them and you're really really immersed in them you either sort of you know think any writing ambitions you have might be my goodness all of these people doing this and telling the stories and I'm not sure and I'm quite overwhelmed by the the act of it or you read things and you think I could do that and where do you think you fall? Is it does it depend on the day? Well, it's a very interesting question. I mean, I think the thing about being a professional reader is that the the volume of the volume of reading. The thing is, as well, I really like other people's books. I really do. So there are all sorts of ways in which I think you want to procrastinate about writing. I did a workshop just last weekend and was getting you know, and this is people that haven't been published and they want to write, and I was asking them, mm. you know, what stops you? And it's all like family and whatever but one of the big things that stops me is like I really like other people's books does the world need a book from me maybe I would be better place spending my time reading books and thinking about that and doing that sort of stuff so it it kind of and I really just think that might be true so in that sense it sort of stops me someone I can't remember who it is now I'm gonna say that please don't stop (laughs) that's so kind 
So I might be Elizabeth Jane Howard. I don't know. Some some writer said that they started writing books because they'd read everything. That that so they started making up stories. And of course that that is to a particular era, isn't it? Yeah. You couldn't now as a as a person engaged with the world write books because you had nothing else to do or mm. that you didn't have that there weren't other words to consume. So that could never happen now. The, the way that I'm so interested in series books, I'm really interested in women writing. I'm really interested in women like Agatha Christie and Georgia Hare, who were really commercially successful, who wrote a book a year for lots of years, mm. who often had, you know, either unhappy private lives or were sort of kind of either disrespected or secretive about their private lives. So I'm sort of interested in that. I'm really interested in the Second World War. I'm really interested in publishing in the Second World War. I'm interested about what happens to an industry when other things become more important mm. you know so uh, it may well be that all of that is leading towards something i want to it do it does sound as though you're really like circling something and it is a bit like a sort of war games black ops i know nothing about how many <laughs> things are, so you're about to hit on we'll be back to the books in a bit but i'd like to talk about my steal of the week a book so brilliant that it's worth its weight in diamonds and buying it for the cover price is a bit like breaking the law uh, this week, it's a book that actually came out at the very start of 2018 in January. It is Feel Free, a collection of essays by the author and lecturer Zadie Smith. It's published by Hamish Hamilton. I find the world so overwhelming. And just when you think that you couldn't be more overwhelmed by it, it gets a bit worse. Um, I'm on social media all the time. There's a lot I love about social media. But I struggle with the many, many hot takes, the opinions that haven't really been thought through or formed, and that everybody is in a real rush to say something very decisive and definitive. But I think the urge to speak perhaps overshadows the thoughtfulness and rationality that some people could do with using. Um, so a couple of months ago, I bought this book. I'm a huge, huge fan of Zadie Smith's novels. Um, I've binged on many podcasts and love to listen to her. And I think this is my favourite one of, of all of her books. It's very calm and very, very thoughtful. Um, the very first essay, which is on um, the libraries that she's been to and loved in North London, you know, at no point does she really draw any conclusions or tell any of us what to think. It's a very subtle invitation to to think about the big and small issues that um, that make up our lives. She's a really thoughtful book reviewer as well, and she is so very, very funny. The essay comparing uh, Justin Bieber to the German philosopher Barber, I think it's Barber, she does it beautifully and skillfully. If you really need to take a deep breath and take a step back and you're as tired of hot takes as I am, this book is gentle and refreshing, but there's wisdom that will stay for ages. And it's really good value because while I did buy it and binge it, I do keep picking up the essays again and thinking about all of the smart things that Zadie is saying. Now back to Kathy. <laughs> Do you, as a writer, are you ever aware that you're nicking someone else's voice? Are there any writers where you find yourself thinking in that rhythm or writing in that rhythm and catching yourself or not? 
I'm really utterly, ter- I'm terrified about plagiarism, especially as I get older. And also, especially, this is why I have to, I mean, I've, like, oh, I've written Agatha Christie. <laughs> well, I kind of, I do, I sort of forget stuff. And I, sometimes I read something I have written and can't really remember writing it. I'm, I'm really terrified I will plagiarise myself in that way. Like, because you're not allowed to do that, are you? I catch people doing it all the time, and it's certain words and phrases. Where like, oh, that's, that's the word they like to say, and I do it all the time, too. I sort of notice it, it cropping up. Mm. Um, but I don't know, I mean, it's, I don't think anyone likes repeating themselves, but at the same time, is it... Is it just like a signature, like an Andrew Lloyd Webber repeated riff? Yeah. With all the books so far that I've written, I've written so much more that ended up in the book. So I've completely now lost the plot on what I've written. But one of the reasons why I find the internet very scary, I've realised, and Twitter especially, is is it it, because it sometimes happens to some people, I then become Mm. hyper-vigilant that it might happen to me. So you read about someone, I don't know, being a plagiarist or... You know, some someone again dis- suffering some sort of writerly industrial injury, <laughs> and then I think it's going to happen to me and become very nervous and anxious. Well, I read um, "You've Been Publicly Shamed" by John Ronson, which is really good, and basically just made me terrified of the internet. So I've been anxious about it ever since. And "You" by Caroline Kepner. Have you read that? Oh, I've not read that. Oh, it's really funny. It's about it's got a bookseller psychopath in it, <laughs> so it's kind of like a well, again a, a, a sort of a funny, a funny thriller. Um, but the character, who I think is called Joe, it's ages since I read it, uses social media to find out about his victims. And th- that, again, did make me feel hyper aware of how much we share without knowing we're doing it. Yep, Julian Barnes would be a, a life theme for me. Let's uh, have a look at these. So I've got two. What have I got of these? It's the multiple. Yeah. Um, so like parrot. different renderings of the parrot. It's like the parrot from different yeah. angles. There's the um, the vintage one, parrot in profile, and then what that's a diff, slightly different vintage yeah. edition. Yeah. So I think they did an anniversary edition of this. The original one. Yeah. So this is the original Picador. I say original. A history of the world in ten and a half chapters. Julian Barnes. So this will be something that I've owned for years and years and years. This book. Mind you, maybe not. It's got someone else's writing in it. Because the thing is, I do give books away, and I like to mm. give books away, so I don't tend to, you know, when I say I've been loving this book since I was 12, usually it's not the same edition, because I've lost it, given it away, it's fallen apart. Um, but see, I think I'd probably quite like that. I like see, that. there's the, the pursuit of love as bought as a, an ungiven gift. Um, what do you think is your most given away or gifted book? Um, I really like Mary Wesley, actually. And again, it's quite... It's quite sexy. <laughs> Well, it is actually, but also quite I'm obsessed. Uh, safe. More safe me of, than you, I think. You know, when someone just needs a really good read, you don't mm. want to give them anything that's too terrible. So I like my favourite Mary Wesley. Oh, look, this is this. See, this has been mine for ages because I've written the Bell and oh, Crown in it. Is that the pub? That's that, the um... pub. So that will that will have been when I lived there, which was from when I was seventeen to my early twenties, and the front cover's fallen off. So yeah, this will be it original one Gosh, yeah that that makes your copy of pride and prejudice look, look like pristine some sort of showroom yes. copy yeah but i love Amazing. this one so this is again um i really like novels where old people are remembering being young people mm. and then preferably when they were young getting up to all sorts of shenanigans or indeed getting up to shenanigans as old people i also enjoy that so um so yeah so i quite often give people not that sort of girl which is why i've got an extra copy of that i think at one point i bought sort of four or five of that and would give it to people to give it to anybody who felt like they were just in need of some sort of um a kind of novel cure yeah 
Heartburn. And Heartburn by Nara <gasps> Ephron. Again, you have to, oh, you don't ever want it. to say to someone, sorry, your marriage is falling apart, but this will cheer you up. But having said that, I do like to say quite often about how the whole Nora Ephron's whole thing about everything is copy and, mm. you know, be the heroine of your life and not the victim. Um, I do think that one of the best things about writing is that whatever happens to you, from the kind of the big to the small in terms of bad stuff, mm. once you start feeling curious about how you could write about it, how you could explain it to someone else, then that something of the terror does shift a bit, I think. The Nora Ephron piece of writing that I return to the most that I love the most is an essay she wrote called The Star is Born I don't know if you've come across it I think it's in Scribble Scribble mm-hmm. and it's about ambition and envy and how she's up for this TV presenting job mm. and she has got this rival and as I think we've all got this person where it's always between you and them yeah. a bit like if you were an actor and the yeah. person's kind of similar to yeah. you yeah which is back to why books are just great in general because every time you feel that you're Every time you think you're feeling something unique and it, and you are the awful one or the, it's your unique awful experience, if you you know turn to literature, you'll find someone. Do you know the Emily of New Moon books, Ellen Montgomery? Yes, I do. And there's a bit where she said something like the wonderful thing and the awful thing about writing is nothing is. I'm really paraphrasing. Nothing is ever as magnificent as it is or as awful as it is when you write it down. Yes, <laughs> it's in your head. <laughs> I think that's in general true quite a lot. And I think when you think back at a time, it was never as good as you thought it was, and then it was never as bad as you thought it was. So, yeah, I'm not as keen on them as the Anna Queen Gables books. I'm completely obsessed with Anna Queen Gables. I've been writing a lot about that lately and about... Um, it's very interesting how this stuff comes together, Anna Queen Gables, Pride and Prejudice, Fear of Flying. But I was thinking about how... You kind of grow up wanting to be a particular person or being told that you should be a different, a difficult person. One of the things I love about Pride and Prejudice is, of course, um, Lydia Bennett, the younger, sort of slaggy sister. We're really encouraged to disapprove of her. But, I mean, I think I've got a pretty strong Lydia Bennett streak. And it's that whole thing that you're always trying to be Elizabeth or even the saintly Jane. And it's a bit the same in... So in Anna Green Gables, I can't remember which book. I think it's Anna of Avonlea or Anna of the Island. And there's a classmate called Ruby Gillis and again Ruby Gillis has always been like she's always had an eye for the boys and as far I mean it is Anne of Green Gables I mean there's no sex there's not a hint of sex or anything like that but as far as there is I'm sure some people have a fetish for having a slate smashed over their head well quite yeah (laughs) but in as far as there is sex Ruby Gillis is like massively mm. up for it and then of course she, she has to get consumption she's blonde and ringlety sort of red cheeks red lips even before she gets consumption she's very beautiful she's the most beautiful corpse mrs linda's ever seen i think <laughs> but of course but that's the thing she she it's one of those things where you think oh you would like to have sex so therefore you have to die <laughs> you have to be killed off you know but that's Thomas always Hardy quite country isn't it? yeah oh you look a bit like you're you're on a promise, let's throw you off yeah. a mountain. Sort of moral lessons in novels, isn't it? Like um, what Katie did, you know, be a bit mm. disobedient, end up being disabled for a really long time because that's what you deserve for not doing what you're told. I feel quite sad because I loved that book so much. Mm. And rereading, um, have you read Lucy Mangan's book about childhood reading? Yes. And Lucy Mangan's sort of rereading that and thinking about, you know, the moral of what Katie did and the way it's sort of rewarding women for being quiet and still and stoic mm-hmm. and not doing it. Like, oh, yeah, that's, that's not the best, is it? No, but I also... But I love the school one. Yeah. With Clover. I love it. And the, the, the getting wrongly punished because they, the teacher thinks they're the ones that give that are sending the letters to the boys yes. and they're not and being wrongly punished. I do also think, though, you can sort of simultaneously read stuff with a modern eye and think how interesting, but you can also still just love it for itself. 
herself. Mm. So I'm not going to allow Ruby Gillis having to die because she fancied a shag, put me off Anne of Green Gables forever, I don't think. But it's one of the reasons why it's so interesting, isn't it? What um, I've become... Uh, so I've just got hold of Ellen Montgomery's journals because, again, I'm really interested to see what, uh, like where the shadow side is in herself because of course it's always to it, you've got to remember as well that these women were writing into an environment where they were very limited in what they could say yes and they had to because so many of them I suppose were doing it because they had to make some dollar mm. and they had to have a sort of commercial eye on yeah. what was gonna yeah but she didn't have sell. a she didn't have a great life and um well I mean she, in some ways she did I suppose but she had a very interesting and much more troubled personal life than though in some ways her story does sort of tally a bit with Anne's in some ways but I just find that re- I just endless. I find that endlessly fascinating. What what ends up on the page and how it ends up on the page. So so potentially the same person could write a diary, not for public consumption. Mm. Though of course I'm reading it now. Could write novels. Could be written about all this stuff about them. And of course this is becoming a writer myself. I then become really preoccupied with other people's children because of course I'm more preoccupied with the well-being of my child than I am with the well-being of myself. Mm. So. Who are your um, favourite and least favourite children in books? Who would you adopt and who would you return to the new, the orphanage? <laughs> <laughs> well, again, having my own child has sort of informed... That sounds very owny, doesn't it? Having my own child. Uh, sharing my life with a small creature who once was inside me has given me a real liking for finding him in literature. So so in Anne of Green Gables, he's Davy Keith, so he's the, the very unruly and boisterous six-year-old boy oh. who kind of, who says, like, I'm not bread and butter hungry, I'm plum cake hungry. <laughs> yes. And um, George Hare, actually, there's a lot of very nicely done children. And there's um, Felix in Federica, again, a technology-obsessed child. Ge- general, like, nice stuff with uh, heroines quite often have... Slightly unwise younger brothers. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
So we are in Kathy's kitchen. Um, I see wetsuits on the bookshelf and exciting books. There are library books, which I really love. I love getting books from the library. Sometimes I order stuff because someone's told me about it, like Patrick Gale recommended I read A History of Reading, Ooh, which I hadn't read before. That is vast, and that's Alberto Manguel. Yes, I haven't looked at it yet, but I was talking to Patrick about reading, and he um, he suggested this, and I haven't read it yet, but um, it says, The history of reading does not exist, for it cannot be written, only imagined. But anyway, so I'll get that out from the That shouldn't really be a book after that, should there? They'd be like, nope, that's yeah, it. that's it. We solved yeah. it. Heroines of SOE, completely obsessed with the Second World War. Britain's Secret Women in France. Oh, that looks great. So this was great. I've finished this now. So when you go to the library, do you sort of have books in mind that you're looking for? Or are you quite browsy and will you grab things that intrigue you? Yeah, a bit of both, really. I, I order stuff from them. So if I think of something I want, I quite often see if the library's got it. Then you can order it and then it gets sent to them from all over Cornwall. Um, I quite like it as well in this modern world. I could, of course, probably immediately get an e-book. But instead, I wait to see whether it will surface from the central stack. I kind of almost quite enjoy in that way that there is this delay and that I don't mm. know if I'll get what I want. So there's mm. this... Um, the Clocks by Agatha Christie. I know it's not a particularly good Christie, but I, I, when my son asked me the day what it was about, because we talk about Agatha Christie a lot, so I'm obsessed with that, I couldn't quite remember the plot, so I thought, well, I'll have to read it just so I can update myself. Um, I mean, one of the reasons, actually, why I really like reading crime is that I think it has a social commentary, you know, there's a social history built into it. Yes, yeah, so this is 1963. So it will interest me to reread this, partly just to see what it's about, and also, again, thinking 1963, you know, Sylvia Plath died in 1963. What else was happening in 1963? Yeah, that's, so I that's think Beatles reading, records. And... Yeah, Larkin thinking that sex was invented, so we'll have to see what... Ooh. The clocks has got to say about it. Mm. This is just a pile of stuff. Matt and I are reading. We read a bit of Biggles, a diary of a wimpy kid he likes. And he adores these treehouse books. And the 13-storey oh. treehouse. They're amazing, because I don't think my son would mind me saying that he hasn't always... You know, he likes being read too, and he's very interested in stories, but he struggled with reading quite a lot. But these, they're sort of a bit graphic novel um, they're very funny, so he likes getting the jokes out of them and then telling the jokes. They have a really zany sense of humour, and um, and he just loves these. And I would, I mean, lots of things have helped him read, including actually audio versions of Harry Potter and reading Harry Potter, which he also likes to do. So loads of things have been helpful, but um, but these thirteen story treehouse books by Andy Griffiths and Terry Denton have been amazing mm. so people quite often want to know what you can give a child who's mm. not that keen on reading but the thing is they've just been complete pleasure partly i think because of the great cartoons and brilliant i was thinking it's so interesting that children's books i think such a lot of them are really really funny and then obviously there are you know funny novels and funny books for adults but they seem to be perhaps a lot less commercially successful and a lot less highly regarded when I think writing a joke is one of the hardest things mm, in the world. Yeah, yeah. funny books don't tend to do well but I, I think also when you try to think about funny funny novels mm. it can be tricky. There's not loads and there's not many that sort of work and stand the test of time. I'll tell you what I was thinking about the other day was Kill Your Friends by John Niven mm. which is unbearably funny apart from everything else and um, I was thinking about it actually because I was thinking about ambition 
And there's a great line in it about how Jerry, Har- Jerry Halliwell wants so much to succeed that she would swim through shark inspe- <laughs> that she would swim through shark infested spunk. <laughs> and I thought actually that's quite a good way to. It's like that fin, the sharky in there, the idea of the fin being up. That's a very good way of describing someone who's very ambitious, isn't it? Now you've just reminded me of funny books, and I thought yes, that's funny books. So I'll probably at some point now have to reread that novel because it's kind of starting to dig into my head a bit. They just saw it in a charity shop, and if everyone sort of thinks of it as a bit, you know, this kind of big, big romantic novel, but I really loved one day, but I think I loved it the most for the jokes. And mm. there's that bit about um, Ian, the stand-up comedian, um, Emma, as a line where it's something like, in you know the years and years that they'd been going out, Ian had only ever really made Emma laugh once, and that was when he fell down the stairs. <laughs> that is very good. But David Nichols is very funny, mm. you see. So again, he seems to be funny almost with whatever he does. I love Sophie Kinsella. Mm. And obviously, she doesn't need my help. She does very, very well. <laughs> but I think she is one of the best comic writers mm-hmm. alive and I think there's a lot of snobbery about the way she's packaged and sold but there's a real thing when out. something becomes successful people mm. then want to think that it's crap precisely because of it's successful so I would also put Harry Potter in that category yeah. and Bridget Jones's diary again another magnificent comic creation I think Bridget Jones's diary is magnificent that's the book I probably reread the most yeah. and know nearly off by heart yeah well, I mean I reread it every I, Pretty much every year, at the beginning of the year, I read Adrian Mole and Bridget Jones. I brought these down, because I think what you what I read before bed is quite interesting. Oh, as in yes. that I can't read. Brilliant. So, yeah, this is your, um, your By the Bed Books, The Daily Stoic. I don't know, that looks great. Well, that looks so like a book I need in my life. The basic rule for bedtime reading is I can't read new things, and I can't read anything that's too exciting, because I just won't go to sleep. And as I get older, I can't cope with not sleeping. So I just don't read new fiction before bed anymore. So I read, I, I'll, I'll read diaries. Um, quite often I've got a writer's diary on the go. So I read, or, you know, Virginia Woolf's letters or something like that. I'll read that sort of non-fiction. Um, but I also have a real passion for things. So this is called The Assassin's Cloak, an anthology of the world's greatest diarists. I love this. Ooh. See, this is my second copy of this because I had a hardback. Uh, it was published years ago. And I gave that away to someone, can't remember who. So then, and then I just thought I wouldn't have it for a bit. But then, um, but then I just thought, no, I can't live without it. So I bought it again second hand. <laughs> but basically, every every day of the year, there's a sort of a selection of diary anthologies. Virginia Woolf. So 1935. Yesterday I saw the kingfisher again on the river. It flies across and across, very near the surface. It has a bright orange chocolate underside, and it is a tropical bird sitting weighted on the bank. I've also seen a stoat, brown with a white tipped tail. That's a good entry. So, so it's kind of, and I just, something very soothing. And again, mm. it's that whole thing, life goes on. Oh, Vera Britton, there's quite a lot of her. Ah. Quite often I read someone in here and then I go off and read the whole of their diaries or the whole of their memoir or whatever it is. And I'm not, I also, I'm not allowed technology in my bedroom because I'm not allowed to then think, oh, that's interesting. Mm. I, maybe I should Google and find out at what point, you know, Christopher Isherwood did this because of course then you're into a whole but other one I open and you've ordered ten diaries <laughs> here tomorrow yes so and I like yeah so the Daily Stoic similar thing there's a different thing per I quite often have some of this a different entry per day I love stuff basically with an entry per day let's see if we have better luck with this life isn't a dance hmm the art of living is more like wrestling than dancing because an artful life requires being prepared to meet and withstand sudden and expected attacks. 
quite nice, isn't Ooh. it? Well done, Marcus Aurelius. Love Marcus Aurelius. I like the random nature of it, but also I like the imposed structure. Like, mm. I, I just would have a pile of books. Um, but there's something about, with that kind of book, the choice being taken out of your hands. All you've got to do is, it's this day. Yeah, exactly. I could come down and look at my enormous poetry shelf and choose something from it, but then... I do find actually that I get I can get really overwhelmed with choice even in my own house yeah. with my own books and I can sometimes when I'm looking for something to read in the bath I'll just sort of like stand and stare at the bookcases and then I'll think you know it's probably been eight or nine minutes and all I've done is I can't decide you know so this is way better than spending 20 minutes sort of gazing at Netflix going no 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 and I do find especially on social media there's lots of quite I find it very frustrating, the um, a bit of superiority in the mm. way people read. And yeah. I think, and maybe, you know, this has always, always been the case. But sometimes I do think, bloody hell, people are a bit performative about the way they read. And I'm totally guilty of it. And I'll, mm. you know, be like, Allah, like this, I think it's good. Well, I mean, I suppose, when thinking about other people, then... Um, like I mean I like doing actual face to face stuff with people so I really love doing reading and writing stuff in prisons um, and part of the reason I really like it to be honest is that there is no performative element to it people literally can't communicate with the outside world if they wanted to and nor is it performative for me I'm telling you about it now but I don't even when I did social media it was never appropriate really to say I'm going to you know, quite a lot. The guidance tends to tell you, unless it's a public event, <laughs> not to say like stick. I'm going to this prison and blah blah blah. I said the worm would scrub sign with your thumbs up. Right? Yeah, exactly, all that sort of thing. So, um, so that I so so that is about doing actual, really real work with often people that are quite damaged, have very bad experience of education, and just trying to shift the dial for them for a bit. So I really love that. One of the things about working with um, emerging readers is. They have a real thing of thinking that if they don't like something, it's their fault. So, um, and I, you know, because my dad couldn't read and write till he was in my 30s, till he was in his 30s, and then didn't read for pleasure until he retired. And then I helped him learn to read for pleasure, and now he does. And that's like an amazing, amazing, amazing thing. Um, But again, he's still quite fragile in his... I'm careful about what I recommend to him, because if he didn't like it, he would think that he was too stupid to understand it or something. So... Stuff does he like? What have you got him into? Well, I mean, he really likes old stuff now. One of his favourite books is Any Human Heart by William Boyd, oh. which is one of my favourite novels. Um, he really loved um, Pilgrimage of Harold Fry. Is there another word in there? The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry? Anyway, the book about Harold Fry by Rachel Joyce. He really loved that. And that was long listed for the Booker Prize that year. And he'd already read it. And I said, well, Dad, you know, not many people read books before they're long listed for the Booker Prize. So he felt really pleased with that. But he reads a lot. And my parents tend to read the same things. Um, he adores Jojo Moyes. Um, so they they read lots of lots of stuff quite widely. Not um, a bit of light thrillers, but nothing too violent. Including me. I think there's a whole... Um, really struggling with reading any kind of psychological crime or thriller at the moment. Because I just think it's too violent. They seem to have really upped the ante on the violence in the books. Which I think is a shame, really. Um, but hence one of the reasons why I'm just rereading Agatha Christie all the time. I think there's something about crime novels where they are satisfying, as you know, so they're soothing because it's a, slightly a cross between doing a crossword puzzle, a logic yeah. problem, that kind of thing. I was just thinking about jigsaws and that yeah. like, sort of the th- you know Fitting things tessellating, yeah, in a way. Yeah, so that's what I like. That's why I like to read that sort of book. So of course I then don't want it to be. Um, 
I basically don't like really being frightened because enough frightens me. So I don't want in my leisure time uh, to be like intentionally scared by books or TV. But it's in, I do, because I do read sad things and I will read sad things on purpose to make me cry because I will know I need a good cry and I think of it like bleeding the radiator. (laughs) So I know I need to cry every so often. So I read a sad thing to make me feel that way. What are the books that make you cry? Oh, so, uh, well, again, I mean, quite a lot of the kids' stuff, partly because, again, it doesn't tend to disturb so much. So, you know, the Anne, Anne books, the Anne of Green Gables books, first few, and um, Little Women, <laughs> Good Wives, that kind of thing. So I often do turn to a children's classic. I sob over Harry Potter as well. I love Harry Potter. And they're so I think they're all about death and depression, basically. And the thing is, I've... Because I've now I read them all to my son before he could read, but now he's reading them for himself. So we just continually have this I sort of have this relationship with them, and every time I read it, I find something, I find some other metaphor or some other meaning. So I think they're brilliant, but also they make me cry. So the other day I was reading to him from um, it's the Order of the Phoenix, and Molly Weasley is getting rid of the Bogart, and you have to. Basically, a bogart will assume the shape of the thing you most fear, and she sees the bogart. I'll be off again. She sees the bogart take the shape of her children, and Harry's watching this. And there's something so incredible and sophisticated. And of course, I haven't spotted this before in any of my multiple readings of it. But Harry is watching this woman dealing with this fear that her children will die. This quite real fear that her children will die. And I'm reading it aloud to Matt, and I just kind of it is like. But mummy, you've read it loads of times. Oh. You didn't cry before. I said, I've just realised how sad it is, and it's so unbelievably sad. But then also, I was reading uh, my friend Tom Palmer, who's a lovely kids author. He's written a book called um, Armistice Runner, and it's one of those nice time slips. So there's a girl in the modern day doing a fell run, and then there's also a story about her great grandfather running down the trenches in the First World War, set in Cumbria. And you kind of know terrible things are going to happen. I was reading it aloud to Matt, but I just kept losing it and crying. And he said, like, voice is wobbling again, Mummy. I said, I know, I'm very sad. But again, it, that's, I think that's part of how, I don't know, maybe he will be, a, you know, a very poorly adjusted grown-up because I used to cry at him all the time. But I don't, it's that whole thing, isn't it? How you let, whether you let your children see your sadness or whatever. But for me, I think to show him that I am moved by mm. books and I'm moved by sadness, it, I think that's probably... Okay, and I the hope. books are moving, and mm. it is like absolutely okay and more than okay to respond mm. to it in those yeah. ways. Have you read Dear Mrs. Bird? I have read Dear Mrs. Bird. I I loved it, and yes. I had a real weep. And yes. I was on a sun lounger, and I had to blow my nose on a towel. <laughs> <laughs> I love the bit in the Cafe de Paris, and mm. I just thought it was also such a nice idea because I also really like women's magazines as mm. a thing of as a, like a little time traveling. Yes. A little t- way of time travel if you Again, look at a magazine of the period. Industries mm. in the war that, you know, you think how important were they or not. And this idea that it's very important sort of to keep up morale and it's not quite propaganda, but it kind of isn't, you know, everything's mm. fine and we're going yeah. to get Fritz when no one's really allowed to write about how frightened they are. I really loved Lisa Evans's novel, Their Finest Hour and a Half. You know, I long to read that. And oh, I don't so know good. why I haven't. It's but... so good. and um, But it's similar sort of... Uh, well, it, it's a, it's Second World War and it's about um, propaganda and I just, I really loved it. I've been wanting to reread that lately. So I get this thing into my head that I want to reread something and then at some point I want to 
I'll How track much it down. time do you think needs to elapse, or does it depend on the book? Do you try to give it at least a year? Or no, I mean sometimes I finish something and then read it again immediately. Oh. Yeah, but I think it's partly I do read very fast, and I just can't cope with being in an open narrative. So I, ideally, I don't really start reading something unless I know I can read it in one bolt mm. because it it just distresses. I don't know how people watch soap operas because they don't end. <laughs> <laughs> I just never be, I've never been able to cope with it because from the moment the the goes to the next program those people are rampaging around in my head because they're not finished. So and that's actually why writing fiction is unbelievably uncomfortable for me. I so I really love talking about writing and I was doing this workshop and I said you know the things what most writers minds are doing certainly mine is there's a little voice saying god this is crap this is probably the worst novel that's been written in the whole history of the world um how embarrassing for your poor agent and editor that they thought you could write fiction when you clearly can't but then equally there's another little voice that pipes up every so often saying like oh that looks quite nice you know what I think we might be a bit of a genius. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to say a big thank you to our brilliant guest, Kathy. Our books, The Last Act of Love and A Manual for Heartache, are published by Picador and available everywhere. I couldn't recommend them harder. A Manual for Heartache, especially, is the sort of book that everybody needs to have in their bedside table to refer to during urgent moments. And it's a great book to give to anyone who needs a bit of emotional support during a difficult time. Thank you so much for listening and thanks to everybody who's been supporting the podcast on social media. It is so lovely to hear from you all. For information about the show, to find the books we've talked about, please go to acast.com slash booked. And to get in touch with any queries about the show, please email whybooked at gmail.com. It's why the letter booked at gmail.com. I am on Twitter at notrollergirl and on Instagram at thedaisyb. That's B, like the insect. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do rate, review and subscribe. It helps other listeners find the show and it's really great to hear your feedback. Thanks so much for listening. Do keep reading and remember, never be ashamed of anything that's on your shelves. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.